hey everybody and welcome oh man i am loud hold on let me turn that down all right uh hopefully that sound is a little bit better well welcome today here's what we're doing we are answering i am answering your questions your questions related to christianity culture the world all those sort of things uh and so questions came in ahead of time on social media through facebook instagram and even questions here that came in on youtube as well as we are going to be answering i'm i don't know why i keep saying we I'm going to be answering your live questions as well, as long as there is time. Now, why do I want to do this? Well, it's simple. Because people have good questions. They deserve good answers. There are challenges that are raised against Christianity that we should be ready to defend against. As 2 Corinthians 5.20 says, we're ambassadors of Christ. God is making his appeal through us. And so we need to be ready, as ambassadors need to be, to, to engage with the culture, to understand the culture, and present good thinking Christianity. And so hopefully through this time, through answering your questions, you can help gain a deeper understanding of Christianity and what Christians believe, how to answer objections that are being raised against your view, or even just understand what other views believe. And so that is the goal today. That's why we're doing it. It's important to think deeply, and hopefully you continue to think deeply with me. My name is Ryan Pauly. I'm going to be leading this fun conversation today. And this actually is a weekly live stream. So if you want to tune in each week, there's interviews. There's Sometimes it's me talking. Other times I interview awesome people. Uh, and so this is a weekly show to continue to help you think deeply, as well as some short videos. Just put out a short one yesterday uh, titled um, Four Reasons Why Heaven Won't Be Boring. And this actually came as a response to first a question from on YouTube asking me about or making the statement that heaven is maybe going to be this eternal worship service. <laughs> now, I don't know about you. I love my church, but that does not sound fun to be an internal worship service. Now, I do think we're going to be worshiping God, but I do think heaven entails a lot more. And then I watched The Good Place, a show on, I think, NBC, if I remember right. Uh, season four ends with some really interesting false ideas about heaven and why heaven actually will get horribly boring and we will want to leave is what the show suggests. And so I address those false ideas as well in a short video that was posted yesterday. So you can check that out as well. So um, that's kind of what you can expect on my channel and what's coming up. Uh, some fun interviews scheduled, some people I'm in conversations with, uh, but weekly long interviews and some short ones as well. So today, as I mentioned, is going to be a Q&A day. I, I have quite a few questions that came in previously, uh, again, on social media. If you want that social media information, here you go. You can subscribe, you can follow to know what's coming up, to send your questions in ahead of time in case you missed this live and you're watching after the fact and you don't want to miss it again. Um, you can do that as well as you can send in those questions live and I'll try to get to them as I can. So we're going to jump right in. First question is asking about, as the video topic, the video title I put has, uh, calling people in power bad names. Uh, and here's where the question says, it says, I don't think it's wise to rebuke a group of people and make them mad. But Jesus always called the Pharisees hypocrites. Should we call people or persons in power bad names? I always believe being careful of my with my words is protecting myself but jesus always criticizes i know it is an act of righteousness but wouldn't it be better to live longer to do more work for god then the bible says something in luke chapter 9 verse 24 what is good for someone to gain the whole world yet lose or forfeit their self so um this is something my wife and i actually have been talking about quite a bit recently as you probably have noticed with discussions on social media. People have harsh words for President Trump. They have harsh words for uh, for uh, Vice President Biden. They have harsh words for governors. And uh, we often are very critical of our leaders today where we are really trying to maybe stand up for the truth, maybe trying to stand up for what we believe is right, uh, stand up against uh, corruption, stand up against what we believe is wrong, um, and in doing so, often use some pretty harsh language. So I want to look with you guys uh, at this. So uh, here we have Jesus. Um, oh, that's the wrong thing. Um, here we go. Matthew 23. Here is the refer the passage that is being referred to here. Uh, Jesus, Matthew 23. Look at these examples with me. <gasps> Seven woes of the scribes and Pharisees. In this section, what do we have here? Jesus says, you hypocrites. 
Again, you Pharisees, you hypocrites, children of hell, blind guides, you blind fools, you blind men. Again, hypocrites. Another time, you blind guides. Again, hypocrites, you blind Pharisees. You get a point here. <laughs> hypocrites, and they're blind. They're leading people astray. He then goes on and calls them whitewashed tombs. Again, with the hypocrites. Says, you serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced? Jesus has some pretty harsh words here for the Pharisees. So what is it that we're supposed to do with this? If Jesus is calling people hypocrites, if Jesus is calling people whitewashed tombs, if Jesus is calling people blind guides and fools, well, should we? Well, here I think is the first important point. We're not Jesus. I'm not Jesus and neither are you. Uh, Jesus is perfect and Jesus is without sin. Um, Jesus knows their hearts. He knows their thoughts. He is knowing when they are sincere and when they are being foolish. He knows that the Pharisees are, are living in hypocrisy by seeing their actions, by seeing what they do, by knowing what is in their heart. And that is, I think, a big difference for us is that I don't know what someone's heart is. I don't know what their intention is. And so um, we are not in the same position as Jesus in making these sort of judgments. Now, with that in mind, I think it's important then to flip over here to Matthew 20 or Matthew chapter 5. Here in Matthew chapter 5, we look at the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the meek. Blessed those who mourn, they should be comforted. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are the pure in heart. But when we go down, we see this section on anger. You've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. Whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hells of fire. Notice that. And let that sink in here for just a moment. Calling someone here, Jesus says, what it appears to be, calling someone a fool makes you liable to the hells, to the fires of hell. Now, Christians debate and discuss how far this should actually be taken. But here's what we understand here, is that the context of this section is talking about being angry with your brother. Right? They're casting judgment. Uh, anyone who's angry with his brother is liable to judgment. And then calling them fools and casting insults. And so, well, can you do this without being angry? Well, yeah, Jesus did. But I think if I check my own heart, I know that often it does come out of anger. It comes out of a hatred or it comes out of a negative thought about the person. I don't know how often I can look at someone and say, you fool and do so with right intention. I think we come down again in Matthew chapter five. I don't know why I was back at 21. There it is, Matthew 44. You've heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. So, I mean, just stop for a second and think about this. Love your neighbor. Jesus says, you should not only just love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So I want to just, maybe present the question back to you is how many of us that we see or even ourselves or our friends or our social media friends, our Facebook friends, when people are calling Trump or Biden or their governor horrible names, saying they're stupid, saying they're idiots, saying all these horrible things, is that an act of love? Are they really doing it with a person's best interest in mind? I think that's something that you have to kind of decide for yourself. And so where do I land on this? Well, as I mentioned, you know, this has been debated on how strict do we need to take this? How much anger can we get away with, with righteous anger? And for me, the question is, can I do it without sin? And I know my own heart and I know the difficulty and the prideful thoughts often. Often it's pride. I know better than you. You are making a fool of this because look at me. And it comes out of pride that I do this, which is sin. So where do I land? Well, I land on safety. <laughs> I land on taking the safe side. If I, I don't want to tiptoe that line as close as I can and possibly go be going over the line. And so I want to try to stay on the safe side and stay away from calling people those names. 
Now, here's the, the big point, though, and I think this is so important, is that this is not like me being ashamed of being a Christian. This is not me being a coward and, 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 and hiding back. You don't have to call someone stupid or an idiot or, or whatever word you want to use in order to make your point. You can easily attack the person's argument, not them. You can stand up for what is right without humiliating and mocking a person. Like, right, like, I don't have to humiliate someone in order to show that their ideas are not good and to stand up for good and true ideas. And honestly, it breaks my heart and it saddens me to see Christians that feel like in their quest to stand up for what is right, they have to bring the other person down. And I don't think that maybe they would say that that's what they're doing, but I think that that's what their actions often are showing. And that's what is the result of their choices. So I think we can stand up for what is right. I think that we can be confident in what we believe. I think we can even discuss and claim that what this person is saying is false, but do so with gentleness and respect. Do so where it is out of a genuine love for that person, because I want to correct bad thinking and I want to confront bad thinking, but I don't have to attack the person to do that. Now, once I actually confronted someone. And we're going to get to the question later on. The question did come in of how do we deal with someone who is in sin? I once confronted someone who was doing this publicly and calling out someone and calling them names. And I shared my thoughts. And part of the response was, well, that's what they're doing. It's kind of like, you know, that's the game they're playing. And so I'm just meet, meeting them. Or even I heard, saw responses of, you know, try, justifying uh, the first presidential debate of justifying the way that Trump was acting by, well, what would you do if you were being attacked? What would you do if people were mocking you? Well, I hope I would be like Jesus. I hope I wouldn't go down to the level of non-Christians, of people who are using personal attacks as a way to get ahead. I hope I would not go down to their level. I hope I would stand high. I don't know if I would all the time and I don't all the time, but I hope I would stand high and want to be like Jesus in that moment where I truly have a love for the enemy. Now, again, well, Jesus did this. Yeah, but he had better intentions than I think we often do. So I'm going to err on the side of caution when calling people names and say, look, I can stand up for what is right and I can be confident in that without calling people names. So that's was a great question. And I hope that answer gives you something to think about. Again, those who are watching live, comment in with your questions as well. I got a bunch that were sent in ahead of time, but you can send in your questions live and I'll try to get to those as well as we go throughout this. So next question, why is Jesus asking people or why is Jesus asking people to heal and to spread the gospel sometimes, but sometimes he warns people not to, though they did it anyways. If so, what is the purpose of Jesus warning them not to tell the miracle when he knew they were going to regardless? Another Great, great question. So there's a few things that we can look at here and to try to understand what was going on here with Jesus. Now, it's possible. Uh, one reason is that Jesus didn't want people to focus on his miracles. Uh, just today, I was, I was reading and actually focusing uh, for my devotion today on uh, uh, God being all-powerful uh, was my kind of focus. And I was reading passages talking about God's power. In Romans chapter 1, it says the gospel is the power of God. To save. And then in Romans chapter one, it says God's power is, is clearly seen in the things that he has made so that we're without excuse. And you can look at uh, Colossians one of Jesus Christ as, as the creator and sustainer of all things, but also as the one who is reconciling all things back to him. And I think it's interesting that a lot of times you look at the power of God and the power of God is talking about the power to create, to reveal himself to us and ultimately reconcile us back to him. It's this kind of power of the gospel. And so this kind of led me into looking at, I believe, and off the top of my head, I think it was Matthew chapter 16, where it references this idea where it says you, actually, I think I did pull it up, but this is not off the top of my head. Um, yeah, here we go. Matthew chapter 16. Let me pull it up here. Uh, Matthew chapter 16. There it says at the top, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. Here's, I think, one possibility of Jesus telling them not to share after doing a healing. I think possibly it could draw attention to the wrong thing. I think possibly it could bring attention to uh, them focusing on his miracles. 
And this is often how he spread, right? This is what made him really famous and popular and why the message spread so quickly is the things that he did. And we see that in the book of John of look at what he did. He is God. At the same time, we saw people gravitate too much to the miracles. We saw people leaning too much on the miracles. And I think it's possible that Jesus says, hey, don't, don't spread this whole miracle story. Like, because again, it's then we're just going to desire more and more miracles rather than desiring Jesus, the person behind them. Now, it's also possible uh, that this is a way to maybe not for Jesus to not become too famous too fast, right? We saw that the message of Jesus spread so insanely fast that it almost became difficult for him to travel. It became difficult for him to be alone. He would try to be alone. And next thing you know, people are there. And so possibly it's a way for Jesus to kind of maybe slowly get his foot into the scene and not be so overwhelmed that he kind of doesn't have the ability to travel to meet the needs of the people. Again, like we see examples of him trying to get to, it was a Jairus' house where the crowds are so pressed around him, he's having difficulty even getting there. And so imagine if this message was spread even faster, the people came even quicker, it's possible his ministry would have cut, been cut even more short. So it's possible uh, that he is wanting them to not share in order to make sure he doesn't become too famous too fast. Um, I think it's also possible that uh, him not wanting them to maybe spread false information. I mean, look, for example, at the lives of the disciples. They lived with Jesus. They ate with Jesus. They slept with Jesus. They, they hung out with him all the time. And randomly, Jesus kind of asked them questions and even they got it wrong. And so here are the people that are with him the most and really still don't fully understand who Jesus is and why he has come. And so it's possible that it's like, hey, don't go out telling people all about this because you're going to start spreading false information and we don't want that false information getting out. Now, we also see in the person of Jesus that, you know, he does this not only just by healing people and saying, don't share, but we also see Jesus um, concealing information, like with his parables, right? So he, he shares the parable to all the people, like the parable of the sower. And then afterwards, the disciples are like, well, Jesus, tell us, what does it mean? And he even tells us, like, I speak in parables so that those who have ears to hear can hear and those who don't, don't. Right. And so Jesus is kind of presenting this idea where like some people are going to get this information and others won't. And we trust in his sovereignty. We trust in his goodness that he is getting the message to the people that need to hear it. And so Jesus is kind of revealing himself in the way that is best, the way that is going to reach the most number of people uh, that is not going to harm and hurt his ministry. So it's like, hey, he's wanting to reveal himself in the appropriate time, in the appropriate way, the way that he wanted. Now, the last time or the last way that we see Jesus kind of silencing people is the demons. The demons frequently cry out, Lord, and, this, and Jesus, be quiet, right? Now, this is also kind of strange and we can speculate on why. And again, maybe it wasn't time for that specific message to get out. Maybe Jesus is like, no, you're not going to be the one that tells them. You know, I'm going to tell them sort of thing. Uh, we don't know, but we definitely do see these kind of examples. And so it's, I think, ways that we can speculate of God saying, look, I'm going to reveal myself in my way, in my time to make sure the ministry is done and the people are met that need to be met. So uh, those are a few thoughts on uh, Jesus and not sharing his message as quickly. Um, all right. So our next question, and I am going, I guess, a little bit uh, I don't know if these are too long or too short, but we'll see. Um, we're cruising along, some of you watching. So thank you guys for joining. Again, you can send in those questions uh, in the live chat if you want to interact with what's going on today. But here, the next question that came in, uh, this one through Facebook was, um, Mark and Luke are very similar. They are telling almost the same stories. Why so? Is it written in different perspectives? I don't think the Bible would be written more than needed. <laughs> Another great question here. Um, I do think there are different perspectives. And kind of at a more basic level, I love the way that Jay Warner Wallace puts this, right? So Jay Warner Wallace, the cold case homicide detective, he's on my show a few weeks ago talking about what actually counts as evidence for God. But it's this idea that at, like as a cop, you, you show up at a crime scene and you have your witnesses and you want to separate and you kind of ask each witness uh, what happened. And there are going to be some differences, but there are going to be some similarities. And if you ask four witnesses what happened, and they give you perfect identical stories to the T, then you know that they've talked to each other and you know that they corroborated and they kind of created this story. And therefore, it's much more difficult to trust. And so I think one kind of response that's not in the question, but I think it's important to point out, is that people always say, well, because the Gospels are different, therefore they're not trustworthy. And I think it's actually the opposite. Because they don't match perfectly, they're more trustworthy. If we had four Gospels that were 
absolutely identical, then you know that they're just copying off each other. You know that they're corroborating, they're sharing their stories, and then you can't actually trust it. So it's the fact that there are slight differences that show us that each one is writing from a unique perspective giving us a slightly different story, but ultimately the same story, right? So if you show up at a crime scene and you say, you know, what did you see? And the one person says, well, um, you know, he had a black shirt on and he was driving a red car um, and whatnot. And the next person comes along and says, oh, well, it was a Dodge Charger. And actually it was a, it was mostly white shirt. Now it seems like, okay, this doesn't really match. Well, maybe you find out one person was standing behind and it's, yeah, black on the back. Like I have a cycling jersey that's all black on the back, but the front is all blue. And so maybe someone was standing in the front, saw the face, another person standing in the back, and you can now put, start to construct a more full story when you look at these things, if you can reconcile these differences. Again, I also have an interview with Mike Lacona uh, on reconciling kind of these gospel differences and how we can kind of put these together and not see and see that they're not actual contradictions. And so I think that this actually really helps us as we see these different perspectives and really kind of get this fully encompassed view of who uh, Christ is and what he has done. And so that's kind of the first thing is we do see some differences there. And that's actually, I think, a good thing and leads to the credibility. Now, as far as the different perspectives, um, in short, I think you can point out some highlights, some differences. So, for example, Matthew. Matthew is generally claimed to he has been writing to the Jews uh, Matthew's very familiar with the Old Testament. He is pointing to the prophecies that Jesus has fulfilled from the Old Testament. And so Matthew really paints Jesus as Israel's Messiah, right? So writing to the Jews saying, Jesus is your Messiah. Here's how. Look at all the Old Testament passages of how Jesus has fulfilled these things. He is the person you are waiting for. Trust in him. And so Jesus is kind of this rightful heir to the throne. He falls within the line of David. He is the promised Messiah that you are waiting for. Trust in him. And so we see this theme kind of running throughout Matthew as he is primarily writing to the Jews and shows a very strong familiarity with the Old Testament. When you look over to Mark, Mark is generally believed to be the first gospel written. And so you see... Um, kind of almost this broader audience just saying, hey, I want to get this message out to as many people to the surrounding nations because I want to share who Jesus is. And so there's less of a, a, um, uh, a focus on looking at Jesus's birth, showing the birth line, because that's not as important of showing that he's a fulfilled Messiah. And so when you look at the book of Mark, Mark jumps right in to the ministry of Jesus. Uh, Mark is just going from story to story to story, very quick, quick approach. And so some people also kind of look at this and go, well, it's clear that Mark is the first written because he's just trying to get the message out there as quick as possible. So he's just jumping, jumping, jumping to all the big things and boom, here's my gospel. Um, in this gospel, we also have a slightly different picture of Jesus. Jesus is a servant. Um, there's an emphasis kind of on doing and what Jesus has done, that Jesus came and got the job done. And so we see this emphasis, strong focus on the miracles of Jesus as it's look what Jesus did. Look what he has gotten done. He is someone to trust and to believe in. And so Mark kind of being that quick shot approach, here's what Jesus has done, kind of for that wider audience focusing on those miracles. Luke then, on the other hand, as we even look at the beginning of the book of Luke, where he starts off, and I'll pull it up here really quick. I don't have it, uh, but let me type it in here. In Luke 1, as most of us are probably very familiar Luke is laying out a very intellectual eyewitness research account in so much as have many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught." So I think here we see, it's clear, Luke lays out this very orderly, eyewitnessed, intelligent, researched account of the person of Jesus. Why? So that you may have certainty, Theophilus, concerning the things that you've been taught. Okay, so you've heard a bunch of things that are happening in the region. You've been told of what Jesus is doing. Look, I have put together this orderly historical account so that you may know that these things are actually real, that these things actually happened. So Luke is not an eyewitness himself, but he is interviewing the eyewitnesses and sharing the things that actually took place. 
Now, when it comes to the person of Jesus, um, you know, some will say that, you know, it's not like Matthew focusing on Jesus as the Messiah or like Mark saying Jesus is, you know, the one who came to get the job done, someone to trust in. But here, really, uh, some will say Jesus, the stress of Luke is that Jesus is the perfect man. It stresses the humanity of Jesus and who Jesus is as a human, as the perfect man willing to able to take on our sacrifices. And that leaves us with John. Now, often, again, John is the last written. And so some kind of look at John different. It's like, you know, it's kind of like uh, uh, Jay Warner Wallace points it out like this. If you have a crime scene and you separate the three witnesses and you get three different stories, slightly different, all telling the same fundamental truth. But there's a fourth witness that you don't know is actually listening in, that you didn't, you're not aware that this person's a witness. And so the whole time they've been standing around just close enough where they can hear what the other witnesses are saying. And then after kind of hearing what the other people say, comes forward and says, hey, by the way, I was there too. Well, the police are going to take that report, maybe trust it a little bit less in some sense, because it's like, well, we're not quite sure. And you heard everybody else. But here's what's going to be unique about this person is that they are going to most likely skip the big details that the other three included, because they already know that those, those are in the police report. And instead is now going to focus in on the details that were maybe left out. Now, it's possible that something maybe similar happened with the Gospel of John as it was written late, right? And so we have John as an eyewitness now, not so much focusing as much on the things that Matthew, Mark, and Luke focused on, but really focusing on Jesus, the eternal God who became a man. Exercising faith in Jesus is so important. And that's why at the end of John, we see this extreme push of look at all the miracles that Jesus did. So many miracles, they don't fit in all the books in the world, but these have been written. Why? so that you would believe, recognize who Jesus is as the eternal God become man. Now, this is one reason why people reject the gospel of John and say that it must be fake because look, it came late and it really presents this high Christology. I don't think that that is a good objection because John is not giving you something that is not found in the other gospels. We see in the other gospels, this high Christology of Jesus claiming divinity. Um, and so we see that. This is not something new that's invented late. I think John is making it very clear as uh, we see this moving forward. And so here's what I would say as far as uh, looking at the four different Gospels. I hope that kind of helps and why these are similar. I kind of forgot the question. I talked so long. But looking at this idea of how the Gospels are slightly different, are they written kind of from different perspectives? And so hopefully that helps. All righty. Um, all right, this is a question that came in on Facebook. Uh, it's actually a question that I've asked a few times to my guests uh, because I'm interested in what some of my guests have to say about this, but I also want to offer some suggestions here. And here is the question. It says, I was looking through your website for some talks that you've done with people who have given recommendations for curriculum on how to start teaching young kids about God and worldview. Do you have any recommendations for resources for really young kids? My sister and I are trying to work with our sons. Hers is two and mine is one and a half. Together, wanting to have some structure or curriculum. Do you have anything uh, for young kids? All right, so um, I don't have a ton, and hopefully I have more in the future when I get my own kids uh, and I'm going through this myself. However, we have had a few people close to me, my wife and I, that have given birth recently, and we have purchased a few resources. Now, I haven't checked out all of these, but I do think that some of these are, uh, or at least one of them that we have bought, has been a great resource and the other ones look pretty good as well. So let me pull this up and show you what here uh, is a resource. Now on the back, as I will show you, uh, okay, so here's a resource uh, and this is from, let me pull it up here, there we go. This is from Harvest House. And I just went to Harvest House, went to the book, search Baby Believer. And here is a series of books on the Holy Week, uh, we believe Jesus heals, let there be lights from Eden to Bethlehem, Psalms of praise, and first Bible basics. Now, the first Bible basics is the resource that we have purchased for a few, uh, two or three different families who have recently had kids. So if you click here and you look at their example on the back of the book, here you see it says, can I zoom in there? Oh, no, uh, this is not great, guys. Sorry. There we go. There on the back of the book, it says this is for ages zero to four. So this would be for the young, young kids. Uh, but here in this resource, you see uh, with the Bible basics, uh, this is literally just counting one to 10. And it's attaching a biblical Christian truth uh, to each word. So one, 
there is one God. Two, there are two natures of Jesus. Three, three persons in the Trinity. Uh, and it goes on to 10. So this is a basic counting one to 10 book, attaching a biblical truth to each one of the numbers. Now, as I look through uh, the other resources here on the list, um, you know, we see things, for example, like we believe. So I haven't looked all the way through this one. But again, it says there on the back, this is zero uh, ages zero to four. So this is for young kiddos. And it's like teaching the alphabet. A, ascension. What is the ascension? B, baptism. What is the baptism? C, church. D, disciple. And so, look, I think, uh, again, this is kind of a cool way of looking at uh, different Christian truths, teaching some of the basics, because again, as some of my other interviews have mentioned, at the young ages, it's about memorization. And so, hey, as you're memorizing your alphabet, attach that alphabet to biblical truths and start to get them to memorize these certain aspects. And as they grow, they get to learn more about it. So I think this would be a great resource uh, here at Harvest House. Um, they generally have some good stuff. Uh, this series, there we go. Uh, others on Holy Week and what we believe. This actually goes through um, the range of emotions of Jesus and dealing with emotion. So uh, Jesus being thankful uh, with the breaking of the bread. There we go. You see that. Uh, Jesus being sad. Uh, sad when Jesus died. His body laid in the tomb. Uh, being joyful when the disciples saw the risen Jesus. So um, again, I think I've given you uh, quite a few examples here, but I think these would be some great resources. They're somewhat affordable. I think they're like five to 10 bucks each. Not bad. The other resource uh, that I have bought for my nieces and nephews that we've gone through, now this is an older age range, are the Dr. Craig's What is God Like Children series. So this is 10 books for $70, about $7 a book. Uh, but here you learn about the attributes of God, of God being all-knowing, all, all good, all-loving, all-powerful, everywhere, forever, self-sufficient. God is spirit, three persons, and God is great. And so this is a great series in order to teach kids on the attributes and doctrines of God. Uh, let me fix this. Oh, there we go. And uh, there we go, a little bit bigger. And uh, again, this is older. This has some pretty complex thoughts, especially as you get into this idea of God being all powerful and dealing with the problem of evil and whatnot. But again, uh, I think it was about five, six, seven years old that our niece and nephews were when they started kind of reading through this, uh, maybe even for the youngest one. And they start to learn it and they start to pick up on it as we would read these. And maybe not everything makes sense, but as you read it, as you continue to work through it, uh, you kind of start to pick up on some of these truths. So that's another great series uh, that I have uh, purchased for nieces and nephews that I would recommend. So hopefully that helps in looking here at this question on my recommendations for resources for young kids. Um, okay, moving along. And you guys, you guys have been faithful watching. I see your number there. I see you guys are there, but you're quiet. Why so quiet? It's Friday, long day. We tired. I don't know. But um, I got a couple left, a couple questions left. We're trucking along about 30 minutes. Um, so again, your questions that we will take at the end. So send those in or comment on, on anything. All right, next question. Is human free will compatible with God's omnipotence? Isn't, uh, this is an objection, oh, sorry. It isn't an objection I hear often, but I wouldn't be able to answer it if someone was convinced that omnipotence and free will couldn't coexist. Now, this was very interesting uh, when I saw this because you often hear this objection coming from, uh, can humans have free will if God is omniscient, if God knows everything? So if God has planned out our life and if he knows our future, how is it that we can have free will? This is how it is often presented. Um, that, I would say, that, you know, there, there's ways in which we can talk about that answer. So maybe we'll get there in a moment, but let me come back and I ask for clarification, but what about God's omnipotence, God being all powerful? Um, I personally don't see, and maybe this is why this isn't an objection that comes up much. I personally don't see a conflict with God being omnipotent, all powerful, and us being able to have free will. Now, Christians often under misunderstand what it means that God is all powerful. You know, just today, and actually I wasn't planning to say this, so let me pull it up here really quick. Just today, um, as I was going through uh, my devotions, I lead a Friday devotion every Friday for my school. And um, today was focused on God being all-powerful. And I had a quote by C.S. Lewis, and he said this, His omnipotence means power to do all that is intrinsically possible, not to do intrinsically impossible. You may attribute miracles to him, but not nonsense. 
this is no limit to his power. This is a really important thing when we talk about God being all-powerful. Being all-powerful means that he is able to do all things that are logically possible and consistent with his nature. I remember the first time I was teaching a seminary class in the Dominican Republic. Man, I was a young kid. I was like 20... Oh man, at that point, maybe 24, 25. And I'm teaching my first seminary class and I got students of all ages in that class. And I remember getting to this part as apologetics class and saying, there are things God can't do. At that moment, a lady stands up and literally out of her chair and goes to storm out of the room, furious that I would claim that God can't do something. And I said, wait, 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 just hear me out before you just storm out and claim I'm like spewing heresy or something at the seminary. God can't create a married bachelor. God can't create a square circle. God can't create a one-ended stick. These are logical impossibilities. God cannot do the logically impossible. Now, at one point I was talking with a, man, I'm jumping through stories right now, but um, I was on a Maven trip down in Salt Lake City. And I was at BYU, sitting in the BYU cafeteria, talking with a Mormon there and, and talking about this idea that this idea of God in Mormonism, I think is logically inconsistent, where it says that God uh, in Moroni 8.18, that God is an unchangeable being in his very nature from all eternity to all eternity. But then you see in the doctrines and covenants and the teaching of the prophets that God once did not exist, that he was born to his father, God, that he lived as a human, and then he became exalted to God over our, our universe. And I said, man, this is a lot of changes. How can you not exist and then go into existence, not be God, and then become God, yet at the same time, you've never changed? And this Mormon actually admitted, he goes, oh, well, God doesn't have to follow the laws of logic. Well, if we're going to admit that, that God doesn't have to follow logic then we have an illogical God, that he can exist and not exist at the same time, that he's both good and evil at the same time. That's impossible. No, we believe in a God who has not changed, who is wholly good. Um, and so um, we recognize that, no, God follows logic. God is a logical being. And so God cannot do the logically impossible. Now, secondly, along with this, God cannot do anything against his nature. God cannot sin. God cannot lie. God can't die. He is a necessary being. He has to exist. And so there are things that God cannot do. And so to say that God is all-powerful is simply to say that God can do all things that are logically possible and that are consistent with his nature. Now, being able to do all things doesn't mean that you are actually doing everything. So that doesn't take away my free will. I am able to do my students' homework for them, but that doesn't mean that I'm actually doing it. They still either have the free will to do their homework or not. And so I think that if this is kind of the, the claim or the objection that because God can do all things, because he's all powerful, that therefore he does do all things, ignores the fact that no, God has given us freedom to make decisions ourselves, And he is not... Uh, doing everything. Now, he is sovereign. He is in control. He is making sure that his plan is done. But within that plan, uh, he does allow us the freedom to choose. And so God has his sovereign will of desiring for people to be saved. He has his moral will desiring for us to do rightly. But within that, I can choose to eat chicken or, or, or steak tonight. And God is not forcing that decision upon me. Now, another question came in on Facebook uh, during that time. Uh, or just about a week ago, this idea of, well, if a Calvinist believes that God is completely sovereign, you know, then do we have no free will? And my response was, I don't personally know any Calvinists that believe we have no freedom. The, the overwhelming majority of Calvinists believe that we have freedom when it comes to everyday decisions and who we marry and what we do and what we eat and whether I'm going to sit up and whether I do this with my hands or not. It's just when it comes to salvation and, and being able to choose God without him first calling us is where we don't have that ability because we are dead in our sins. And so that is, I think, a misconception that we often have is that Calvinism teaches that there is no free will. Now, I'm not a Calvinist, but that's not what Calvinism teaches, that we have no free will whatsoever. And so God being sovereign, God having power does not mean that we then have no choice. Now, um, Slam, thank you so much for all the hard work modding that you're doing right now. <laughs> I appreciate it. You just never know how these things are going to turn out. Now, how this is often presented is this idea of, well, what about um, God being all-knowing and he knows all things, then do I have free will? And as I've tried to kind of express is, 
knowing something will happen does not cause it to happen, right? There is like, I know that if I drop my marker, it will fall. I know that. But me knowing that it will fall if I let go does not cause it to fall. Me letting go and gravity is causing that thing to fall. And so I do believe there's that the knowledge of what will happen does not stand in a physical causal relationship of what actually does happen. And so God knows what we will do, but that is not causing us to actually do it. And there's ways in which we are like better. Like we can like maybe predict the weather. We can do these sort of things. And I know what will the weather will be like, but me knowing what, what that the weather will be like that does not cause it. It's just me having the ability to kind of tell those things. And so I don't think that there is a, a contradiction in the in the approach of saying, well, because God knows, or even because God has all power or has all knowledge, that therefore our free will is removed. So this is a great question. Hopefully that kind of helps uh, you give an answer if this objection is raised. And I love the facts. I love the fact that this question says, I don't hear this objection, but if one were to be made, I don't know if I would have an answer. So this is like, I want to be prepared. Like sometimes we're more reactionary. Like I just got an objection and now I need to know how to answer it. And sometimes we're like, man, we're on the offensive. I want to figure out what all these objections are and I want to be ready when that objection comes, if it ever comes. And so awesome, good job. I love the question and how you are trying to be prepared um, for when this objection might come. And hopefully that helps give you at least some a start to think about this topic. Um, I got two more left here. And then again, uh, okay, wonderful. Critical Chris, uh, thanks for joining back. It's good to see you again. I haven't seen you, I think, for a while. Um, I will address yours in just a moment. i just starting on this one. Okay, what is our obligation? This next question. What is our obligation to, as Christians to correct a friend who is sinning? This is a great, great question. Um, I think it comes from a few, I think there's a few thoughts that I would love to share about this that I have kind of jotted down and that came to mind. And the first thing is this. I frequently say this because I think it's so true is that we often are not quick to correct our friends, possibly because we have been affected by a secular worldview or at least a materialistic worldview of the importance of the body and not as much emphasis on the soul and the spirit. Now, why do I say this? Um, if your friend is eating unhealthy and they are horribly mistreating their body and in the, in the, in the things that they are eating, we're often very quick to be like, man, this is not good for you. You should not be eating this. You're hurting yourself. If our friend is doing physical harm to their body, we are very quick to say something. However, how quick are we to say something when they are doing spiritual damage to their body through sin? As Christians, we recognize that the soul is eternal. The body will eventually die and we will receive glorified bodies. This physical world will be made by God. It is the spiritual world that it continues to live. How much more then should we focus on the spiritual health and well-being of our souls and our relationship with God than the physical? Yet we often are very quick to correct someone very quick to intervene when someone is doing physical damage to their body. Man, you're smoking. It's not good for you. Man, you're eating healthy. It's not good for you. Maybe you're cutting, you're doing something and we should intervene in those cases. But then people are engaged in sin, engaged in pornography, engaged in lustful thoughts and whatever it may be in addictions that are damaging their souls and sinful behavior, maybe even hating their brother and calling out people living in pride. And we go, ah, oh, well, that's them. And we don't say anything. So my first maybe challenge is, do we need to maybe take a step back and recognize the worldview that's influencing us where we don't feel the need to, to step up and say something to a brother who's in sin, where we would quickly say something to a friend who is physically harming their body? Something to think about. Now, we have to recognize that... Um, we should not let our friends remain complicit in their sin. We have to help them confront their sin. We have to help them repent. And they may not listen to us, but we have to do that. We have to stand up for them. We have to recognize sin is a big deal. I think this is another thing that we often sometimes minimize is the effects of sin. Oh, well, it's just a small something. Oh, it's just a little whatever. We have to recognize that one sin is enough to separate us from our creator. Now, I do think that 
there are things that we assume are sins that maybe are not that we should overlook. There are ways in which someone behaves or acts that is not necessarily wrong. It's a weird quirk or it's something that's not actually inappropriate. It doesn't damage your relationship with them. It doesn't damage their their testimony to other people. Maybe it's something that you don't like, uh, but it doesn't actually hurt that relationship. It doesn't hurt other people. It's not necessarily dishonoring to God, even though you may go, oh, I don't really feel comfortable with this. Uh, and so that's something that maybe we should overlook, these kind of minor offenses. However, we do need to recognize that if they are doing a sin that is actually dishonoring God, damaging relationships, hurting that person's testimony, I think we need to call it out. And I think this even goes back to the first question that I discussed of when believers are publicly mocking and humiliating public figures that I don't think is right. I think, and I even said this when I talk to the one person. I said, I think this is damaging your testimony. You are a public figure. You are in the spotlight. I think this is damaging to your testimony as a faithful follower of Jesus Christ, as someone who loves people. I don't think this is the right thing to do. So I think we need to recognize when this is significant. Now, there's two scripture, there's two passages that I think are helpful in our approach in answering this question. First one is in Galatians. This is Galatians 5, uh, 6, 1. Brothers, if anyone is anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him. A spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Clearly in Galatians 6, it is telling us we need to restore a friend who is caught in sin. But watch out for yourself. Now, I want to share with you here really quick. In my high school class, I recently talked to with my students about this idea of engaging culture. And one of the, 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 the problems with trying to create cultural changes that you have to get close to culture. And if you get close to culture, it's possible that you can be affected by that culture. And so there's questions that we have to ask to make sure that we are not falling into the sin and temptation that we are trying to bring change with. And so questions like this, do you know how you're being affected by you know, uh, the book in my high school book, it gave the examples of like the XXX church that is like doing ministry and trying to reach people in the porn industry. Like if you got a porn problem, that's not the ministry for you to be in. And if you get into that ministry and you start to get affected, then you need to step back. And so we first have to recognize as we are confronting our friends in their sin, we have to make sure we're conscious that we are watching out for ourselves, that we do not fall into temptation because now if we fall in the pit with them, now we're both in that place. And so we have to be constantly asking that question of how am I being affected by this? Secondly, are you making excuses? Are you engaged in maybe a similar sinful behavior that you're making excuses for? You get caught cheating on a test. This is my example of my high school students. You get caught cheating on a test. It's like, well, but last night I didn't have a chance to study. Or, oh, but my parents were doing this. And you start to make excuses for your behavior rather than recognizing that you too are starting to fall into that sinful behavior. Oh, well, it's okay that I did this, you know, because I'm trying to help them. Oh, it's okay that I watched this inappropriate video because I'm trying to understand what this person is going through. No, it doesn't work that way. Don't, we should not be making excuses for our own behavior. If we are, we're too close. Number three, are you losing your sense of distress? Are you so close to maybe the sin that you're not even maybe seeing it as a problem? That you're watching evil take place right in front of you and you don't go, hmm, um, that's wrong. But it starts to become normal. You're too close. And finally, are you trying to do it by yourself? We have to recognize we rely on the Holy Spirit. We rely on friends. And that's what leads us into our next kind of guide on how to deal with friends who are in sin. The last thing here is Matthew chapter 18, right? That very clearly lays out this approach. As we see, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. If he doesn't, then you take one or two brothers along so that every one uh, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, then tell it to the church, right? This is a Christian you're talking about. You need to be held accountable to the authority in their life, the pastor, the church, the people that are supposed to be there to challenge them to continue to live faithfully to Christ. And so I think not only from Galatians 6, but we also see here in Matthew chapter 18, a way in which we, Jesus is telling us, here's what we do if your brother sins. You got to hold him accountable. That is, that is the aspect of the body of Christ that we, that we walk through life with each other. 
that we stand up when one of us is down, that we are not meant to do this alone. And so I would say, absolutely, if your friend is in sin, what is our obligation? Our obligation is to help them. But watch out that you do not get too close. Bring people along with you and continue to ask those questions and make sure that you're doing okay. Now for a live question, um, and Jacob, thanks for sending that one in as well. Let me see what critical Chris, what did you have to say here? When you say that God is a necessary being, I take that to mean that there is some contradiction entailed in his non-existence. So what's the contradiction entailed in God's non-existence? Um, well, if I'm understanding you correctly, to say God is a necessary being means that he exists necessarily, that he can't not exist. So to say that he is necessary, that he has to exist, and then at the same time to say that he doesn't exist, there's a non-existence, that would be a contradiction. It's like saying, I don't know, maybe I'm alive and I'm dead at the same time. Um, you can't have both. And so to say God is always alive, he's necessary, he's always there, to then say he's dead would be a contradiction in the way that this uh, fits. I think that's it. So sorry. I know you've been busy. Um, so, uh, but thanks for joining. It's really good to see you here again and, and to uh, have you asking those questions. Critical risk, what propositions uh, form the contradiction? The proposition a necessary being is a being that exists by the necessity of his own nature. Uh, then to talk about the non-existence of God by definition would be that he does not exist. So and I'm not really making it necessarily an argument, but it's just it's just the definition of the two words, the non-existence versus necessary, meaning existing by the necessity of his own nature. Um, that would be the contradiction. So sorry, um, I know you can kind of continue to comment below and we can discuss this uh, to see if um, I can better answer that question. All right. I think uh, unless there's others from you, I do have one more question here uh, that came in on Instagram today uh, that I would like to address. And then we will uh, see what else there is. Um, do you think you are the same as your body? Answer is no. I do not think I am the same as my body. I would say that we are souls that have a body. Now, one biblical justification for this belief here is that in Matthew chapter 18, sorry, Matthew chapter 10, it says, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. So I think Matthew chapter 18 that uh, presents this idea, and Chris, I'll get back to yours in here in just a moment. Uh, I think Matthew chapter 18 presents this idea of killing both body and soul. And so there's a difference between body and soul. Now, from kind of a philosophical uh, argument and reasoning, I think there's two main reasons of which I would present why I am not a body, or I'm not the same as my body. Uh, the person, the identity of who I am is not the same as a body. And actually, these were um, uh, examples that I tried to present in a conversation I had with uh, T-Jump on his YouTube channel um, and that we discussed. But um, the first one is this. Um, the identity through change over time. And so I think a way in which I think uh, you can show that you're not the same as your body is by asking the question, uh, when were you born? Okay, I was born in 1988. So did I exist in 1988? Yes. Did the physical body I have now exist in 1988? No, it did not. The molecules have changed. The cells have changed. Most of my body is different, right? The majority of your body replaces itself every seven years or so. So if I am my body, then how was it that I existed in 1988 if my body did not exist in 1988? And so this is one kind of question that I think can be presented. Now, there's some deeper things we'll get into here, but this is a question I presented. If I existed then, my body did not, I can't be my body. I have to be different than my body. And so the question that really this is asking is, do we as humans remain the same as we replace parts or as we change? Do we remain the same? Purely physical things don't maintain identity through change. If I take a, um, my bicycle and I slowly replace every single piece on my bicycle, I, I get a new bicycle. It is not the same bicycle. It's a new bike. And one way that we can know that is because you could take off every piece one by one, replace it out, and you have that bike. And then you could take all the old pieces, put them together, and you have two bikes. So if you're going to say that that bike with all the new pieces is the same bike as the one I had before, then how is it then I can have two bikes, one different, one new? 
So purely physical things don't maintain identity through change or through part replacement. And so we as humans do. I am me. I exist in 1988. Yeah, I'm, I'm different in the sense that like I have personality differences and I, I have different interests and, and hobbies and my whatnot. But I, me, my fundamental identity is the same, even though the physical body is going through changes. I think that's one good reason to show that we are not the same as our body. The second is this. Um, physical things have, uh, there's a difference between degreed properties and non-degreed properties. So a degreed property is something that can, can change. So like uh, soft versus hard, loud versus quiet. You can be louder and you can be quieter. That's a degreed thing. Versus a non-degreed property is all or nothing. You either get it or you don't. You have it or you don't. So physical things have degree properties. And so if we ask the question, well, who am I as a human? How do you define a human? If a human is the physical body, well, the, the mass that I have can be more or less. I can have two arms, one arm or no arms. And so you can lose mass. You can lose weight. Uh, you can, but that doesn't make you less of a person. And that's the thing. Your personhood is not degreed. You're not more or less of a person. If I chop off your arms, or you have your arms amputated, so I'm not chopping them off. If you have your arms amputated, you don't get to be, le you're not less of a person. The unborn are not less human because they're smaller. They're fully human as a baby. You're fully human as you grow and you get bigger. You're fully human as you have to have maybe things amputated. Uh, your humanness is not degreed. You are either all human or you're not. Versus your physical body is a degreed thing. You can have a half a body. You can even have a half a brain but you're not half a person. And so I think those are two reasons to say there's a good reason to believe you are not your physical body. Uh, you are uh, different than your body. You are a soul that has a body. And so that would be a quick response there on the kind of the dualist approach with Christianity. So uh, let me come back to the live chat. And um, Jacob now sent in the, uh, we got the correct reference here uh, from Luke. 1332. At that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to him, get away from here for Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, go and tell that fox, behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow and the third day I will finish my course. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and that and the day following for it cannot be a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. Interesting. Um, I actually don't know off the top of my head. Um, exactly of why calling him a fox here i'd have to go back um you know i don't think again it's um it's i think it's again the the, the craftiness of of herod the sneakiness again i think this goes even back to my in the comments at the very beginning of the video that jesus is able to know the true character the true desires and the true intentions of people and accurately describe them and so if he's referring to foxes as sneaky animals or even wicked or whatever it may be, he knows the true desires of Herod here. He knows what he is trying to do. And so then by calling him a fox would be accurately representing what Herod is trying to do. I don't think that we stand in that same position, that I don't know the true desires of someone. And there are times where we'd say, hey, that man, you're being sneaky. And I think we call that out. Man, you are being sneaky. You're trying to just sneak that argument past me. Here's what you're trying to do. And I think we can do that. But again, we can do that, I think, without humiliating, without mocking the person and, and almost dehumanizing them in a sense. So um, there's my quick thought on that passage based on other things and based on what we talked about at the beginning uh, without really looking into exactly what Jesus is referring to there. With that... Thank you guys for joining me. Hopefully this was helpful for you to, to see some resources and to better learn how to understand how to read scripture well and how to interact with the people around us and how to respond to challenges that might be coming our way. So with that, uh, thank you guys for watching. If you want to, oh, I also want to say, if you're still with me and you haven't signed off because I finished answering questions. Last week, I posted my first ministry update video.
And I did not make it public because I know not everyone necessarily wants to see that. Only people who genuinely desire to see what's going on kind of behind the scenes with the ministry and improvements and things that are happening. If you want to watch that video, you can click on the Patreon link in my description below. You can also go uh, to my, I think it was on Twitter. Uh, you can go to my Facebook page. It was posted to Facebook as well. And so you can click that link. It's about a 20 minute or so video answering some questions about the ministry, going over some exciting things that happened in, back in September, as well as things that are happening in uh, uh, going to be happening in October and in the future. That will be a monthly private video. So it's not available to everyone. You have to have the link to watch it. So you kind of have to want to be involved, I guess, and follow on social media and want to know what's going on in the back to watch it. So it's not just broadcast to everyone. So that ministry update is available if you want to watch it. So thank you guys so much for watching. I pray that this was encouraging to you, better prepared you to defend the Christian faith. Continue thinking deeply about Christianity because Christianity, God, and Jesus are worth thinking about. Go out and be ambassadors of Jesus Christ, everybody. Have an awesome rest of the day and a blessed week. See you later. Don't hesitate to follow